Okay, welcome to our experience. Uh, I'm Chad Wurz, Chief Executive for the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, alongside in person, finally, Tom Hansel, who is uh, our co-host on this um, podcast. This is season two, and today we're going to be talking about one of our innovative topics. Innovative, certainly since COVID, but um, bleeding, not le leading, not bleeding vaccinations. Uh, and we've got with us a special guest. Patrick Cody, who's the director of pharmacy for uh, the Lutheran Good Samaritan Society. And I'm going to let Patrick kind of explain what he does just as an overview. He represents um, one of a few pharmacists around the country that have a leadership role for a nursing uh, home company. Um, we call them nursing home executive pharmacists. We have a focus group for them, but it's not a very big um, Fraternity, it's a, it's a smaller one, um, so, but we think it's a, a place that's growing and certainly it really represents the complexity around providing pharmacy services both on the logistical end as well as on the clinical end and the need for pharmacists in those roles. So Patrick, welcome. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah so um, as you mentioned, I'm the director of pharmacy for Good Samaritan Society. Um, we're the largest nonprofit provider of skilled services, but we're also, I think, we're not unique, but we're that we are fully integrated with Sanford Health, which is, um, you know, if you're from South Dakota and North Dakota, especially, uh, but also Minnesota and Iowa, you you know what Sanford Health is. If you're from other parts of the country, you may not have heard of it, but it's, it's awesome. Um, just a real quick question off the top because of where you're from. It does seem to me that in that part of the country, for whatever reason, we, we, we seem to do healthcare better. I, you know, we hear a lot of um, good pull through on programs. I know from the vaccination perspective from COVID-19, that area of the country led the rest of the country in terms of being able to deploy vaccines and treatments. I mean, is there a reason for that or is it, what's your, what's your just your take on that? Yeah. yeah, it's hard to, you know, we've been asked about that a lot lately. Um, I work very closely with our lead infection. And, you know, she got a one-on-one -on -one audience with, uh, you know, someone pretty significant with HHS recently. Um, you know, even, you know, positive nursing home news is very, right. you know, the story was picked up. But, you know, nationally about, hey, look at South Dakota and North Dakota, what the heck is going on here? And, and you know, some of it is, I think, one piece that could be is you're dealing with a you're, we're dealing with pretty rural states, and we're dealing with Sanford Health with a very large system that has, you know, has a very loud voice. Whether that's a political voice or you know a business world voice um, in all of those communities, so I think that's a significant impact. Um, and then and it's not just Sanford; there are other significant health systems in that area too. And 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 then I think probably I think we should give the people of North and South Dakota, for example some uh, politics of community vaccination versus what it means to live in a communal setting in a nursing home and what those risks are. So I think it's easy if you're on, you know, if you're on the, the left coast or the right coast to, you know, to stereotype about the middle of the country. But I think people are a little bit smarter than, than folks may give them credit for in terms of being able to, to delineate, you know, healthcare. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think it's great. I think when you, I've always been interested in finding places that um, are overachieving or succeeding when the challenge is, is 
as great as it is. Um, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about blue zones uh, where people live into their hundreds. And wh what's the reason for that? Is it their diet, their exercise habits? Um, so when you find pockets of places that do healthcare well, you want to figure out what the magic is and how do you replicate it? Um, so, so Patrick, did you guys have vaccine mandates in, in those areas and do you still have them today in certain settings? So for, for Good Samaritan Society and Sanford Health, uh, somewhat related, we've had a long time influenza vaccination mandate for employees. So there was that culture of essentially 100% vaccination rates of employees that I think was helpful. And I think, again, as a rural health system, Sanford really led the way on that. Um, and as we be, as we came to merge with them, we, we had had more of a mandatory reporting for employees, um, and we shifted to their policy of mandatory vaccination. So I think that was somewhat helpful. With COVID, we followed um, national regulations and policy, so we're, it was mandated kind of early on, but we so nothing that's happening with recent vaccination rates has anything to do with mandates. Um, it's completely choice of staff and residents. We're gonna, I'm going to reverse things a little bit, how I was going how we're going to talk today. Can you talk about your vaccine program with your skilled nursing facilities? How does it work? Um, who does what? And how do you, how do you deliver it? Yeah. So taking half a step back to maybe why we were so successful, I think, and, and I know we have a, we're an audience primarily of pharmacists and pharmacy people. Um, and this is one example, and I don't want it to, I don't want it to be the only example. There are many others, but um, a pharmacy chain called Lewis Drug in Sioux Falls has a very robust community vaccination program that they've extended into the, into the long-term care setting as well. And, and it's it's full service. It's you know the, from providing the vaccine to administering the vaccine, and they've gone after it. They've gone after it hard, and they're doing a great job with it. And so, for our 19 locations that are serviced by them, we, we kind of didn't have to do anything, right? We had to we had to do a good job communicating with our pharmacy. Um, we had to be willing. I don't want to get into the complexities of billing right now, but we had to be willing to give up a little bit of our revenue for administering. Those, we, we, we gave it all to the pharmacy in those situations and let them handle it. Um, and so that's a really, you know, for an audience of pharmacists, that's a, that's a great way to help nursing homes and really help us get to a very high rate. And, you know, Canton, South Dakota, that got national recognition um, is a Lewis Drug Service location. So it was the pharmacy that actually did all of the vaccinations there. Um, so that's one piece. But we knew early on, we've got locations in 20 states and we have a variety of pharmacy service providers from true long-term care pharmacies to more of a typical community pharmacy that might take care of one or two nursing homes. And so we we really believe the only way to succeed with vaccinations strategy where we set up a program to get vaccines directly from one of the major manufacturers um, and that was through a Sanford Health contract. We, um, our nursing staff in every single one of our locations knows that they can administer these shots, and um, and and we assisted from the national level, just trying to create that access piece. And then our infection preventionists really hit hard on kind of the acceptance part of it. So my role is 
is finding vaccines for all of our locations. And the infection preventionist role is to try to encourage people to actually do it. I mean, I think that's a great example. And I, and I appreciate how you how you described it, because when you when you're involved at the policy level or at the advocacy level, and you've been part of some of those meetings, you, you tend to feel like people are like, well, this is this is how you have to do it. And, you know, there's people on one side saying, well, pharmacists should do it and they should be able to bill for it. And then the other people on the other side might might say something differently. But what we're really after is the ease and the flexibility of doing it, like because not everybody's going to fall into the same environment. You are going to have places where maybe the long term care pharmacy that that does provide meds to that facility doesn't want to do it. And the community retail does want to do it and they come in and do it. Um, it's really in the best interest of the patient. Right. It, it's, it's a, it, it should be easy for anybody that's willing to do it to do it. And I think a lot of our policies at the CMS level and some of the payment policies make it a challenge because it forces people into a, a, a complexity that, that they're not really motivated or um, desire to get into. So when you get into the way it is now, you know, if the pharmacy might want to do it, they can't do, they can only do some of it. They can't do part A uh, without building some sort of contractual relationship. Um, the facility can't bill for administrations for part D back. Like there's all this stuff. And the reality is it just should be easy. And it doesn't matter if, mm -hmm. if it's the facility that wants to do it or the pharmacy that wants to do it, it should be easy. That ultimately gets more vaccines in arms. And it's been really hard to get the government recognize that you know if they don't really recognize well, everything becomes political right so, well but it just becomes yeah. they, they kind of like well i don't know i don't know why you can't do it it says right here the nursing home can do this and the pharmacy can do this I'm like yeah that's a lot mm -hmm. to get these two entities mm -hmm. to figure out yeah like whereas just take down some of these barriers and make it easy for everybody and they will naturally fill in the gaps yeah so I mean, that's a real testament to, I think, just that area again. Uh, I, I had a chance, actually, I was in the Dakotas last week, and first time that uh, I, I traveled to the Dakotas. So we flew into Fargo, and I was expecting 12-foot snow uh, tunnels, and uh, it was like 50 degrees. I thought, this ain't bad, but drove down through South Dakota on, on the way to uh, Omaha. And one thing I obviously is very not noticeable on, on I think, I-29 is you've got these wind turbines everywhere. And you know, I mean, I was sitting there trying to trying to count them all, which is a little hard at 80 miles an hour. But I thought, man, how how much of the state is powered by these wind turbines? Because I've never seen so many of them. And it just makes a lot of sense. And I yeah, I, I don't know if uh, Google led me right, but it's something like 85% of the state was powered by these. And, and I thought, man, you never hear anything about this. Other parts of the country are fighting for or fighting against this. But here's here's South Dakota, which for the most part is a is a Republican state. They got reusable energy all over the place there. You never hear anything about it. And they're they're doing it probably better than anyone else. Yeah. Just a yep. real testament to kind of the forward thinking. Yeah. Well, Patrick, give us a little history of, you know, how how did you get here? You know. Where's your pharmacy career taking you? Yeah, so um, pharmacy is a second career for me. So I started, um, I was a ski racer 
in college and pursued that a little bit beyond and then um, worked for a regional ski organization in New England that was really kind of taking kids from from the cradle up through Olympic teams in the East, you know, and, and then I, uh, you know, I wanted some new challenges. Originally thought I'd go to med school when I was an undergrad and, and really started reading about pharmacy and got excited about it. Um, and through right away, when I started pharmacy school, I was in uh, at Creighton university in their, in their distance program. And I was able to get an internship with Maine veterans homes. Um, Right away, and you may be familiar with with Maine Vets, small nursing home chain uh, for veterans in the state of Maine that operates its own pharmacy. So right away, I started interning with them, and I, and then I ended up uh, taking my first job with them and working up through. And clearly, from the beginning, became really interested in the clinical realm of pharmacy, um, and created a program there um, where we did bedside counseling of residents who are coming in or discharging from our nursing homes. Uh, always with the pharmacist directly um, and did a lot of, I think, really the, the type of stuff that I think is really clear in theory for transitions of care, uh, but it's really hard to implement. We, we were in a good situation where we could afford to implement those, those um, interventions. I had good success with it and then um, ended up uh, being recruited and deciding to take the position with Good Sam as their first director of pharmacy. And that was eight, eight years ago now. Um, and then the, the thing is, when I took the job, I, I thought it was to be a clinical pharmacist. And right away, I walked through the door and was told, you know, you need to, you know, you need to find $2 million of pharmacy savings, but don't make our locations change anything that they're doing. <laughs> and so great. it was an interesting challenge. And but through a variety of things, we actually filled it, figured it out, and I learned that I like that. I like the business side too. So eight years in, I feel as as comfortable or more comfortable dealing with drug pricing contracts, um, just trying to create a good program that way. But I still probably my favorite moments of any given day are when I get to dig into the point click care database and and figure out kind of what's going on clinically with our residents. Well, I mean, we appreciate that on on our end that that intersection of business and pharmacy. I think is the linchpin to us getting more clinical programming out there. We we don't always have that economic model that goes along with that clinical intervention. The more we get from that, I think the better the pharmacy profession grows into some of those roles. I didn't know. Yeah, and, I don't, and personally, in the in post acute, I don't I don't think we've done enough. Right. With you know some clinical programs, for example. And I, I, and again, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else because I've been in this role for a long time and haven't done it. But we should have a COPD program mm -hmm. that leverages consistent clinical care, by, but also chooses specific products because we can leverage that financially and we can create a more safe, consistent nursing process as well because our staff know those products. And residents, you know, if you use that certain inhaler, a specific way and we can create a better program but it, but it, you know we're we're all busy and it is hard to to kind of to crack those really big nuts i guess um but that's i think where we where we can go in the future to start seeing even more improvement no i agree with that i think i think anticoagulants fall into that category and i think these new glp1s fall in that category i mean these are drugs that are very successful they do have a price tag but there's a 
benefit on the back end of that price tag. Yeah, you know, and I don't want to apologize as a as a pharmacist to say we've we've got to make a profit, we've got to make money. You know, for the last hundred years, drug companies and doctors have all made decisions that was hopefully clinically based, but but uh, you know, in their best interest of their bottom line as well. Now PBMs are making decisions seem to be probably more on their bottom line than right. it's clinically based. But I don't think we should have to apologize for mm-hmm. trying to, you know, win, win both both sides at the same time. And, you know, obviously patients first, but, you know, why, why can we not have to or why can we not make it where it's financially advantageous for us as well? Well, I think I think as nursing. So from the nursing home side, we're we're living in such a world of scarcity financially that I think one thing that we can be really guilty of is, you know, looking at a profit and loss statement, for example, and only seeing only seeing the expense side of that equation and not looking at the revenue side. And revenue can, can take a lot of different forms, Tom, kind of like you were talking about. For example, with the GLP-1s, you will hear formulary whizzes telling you to choose a certain GLP-1 that happens to come in a few hundred dollars lower in cost. But if you look at the efficacy of that medication, you, the, 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 the math doesn't work. Right. And, and I think, but I, but I think so often it's easier for all of us just look at that really quick number on the, on the expense side. And with vaccinations, for example, I think one of the reasons nursing homes struggle with on pneumococcal right now is they see that high price tag for that vaccine and they don't understand the reimbursement on the other side. And you may have to wait a little while to get that reimbursement, but it comes and you actually, you're, you're doing really great clinical care for your resident and you're making a profit. And so it's really, I try to talk to people about that a lot, the importance of connecting the two sides of the equation. Yeah, and I think due to your point, vaccines in general, that's been sort of the, the, the advent this particular year of a high dose flu, of a COVID vaccine, of a potential RSV vaccine, of the new pneumococcal vaccines. They're all new, expensive, branded vaccines. And that's not necessarily a negative. It's an opportunity, but you have to be willing to to buy into that. Um, and for some smaller nursing homes, I know that's been a challenge. Like I'm gonna write a check to buy $12,000 worth of vaccine. Hopefully I use it all. Uh, hopefully, if I don't use it all, I can return it. And those are challenges that most of them are not willing to take. And that's where a pharmacy can come in and alleviate some of that pain. But then again, the pharmacy also has to be willing uh, to take those um, risks. Well, even the GLP-1s for, 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 for weight loss, that's really a preventative measure, yeah. Yeah. just like a vaccine would be. And so if you look at that, that full cycle of, of, of health care and health care cost, that kind of becomes a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true for obviously all medications, but these specifically are, are um, so, you know, effective in being able to reduce weight and, and help all these other other medical issues. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm also fast. I didn't know you were a, a skier. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. We've yes. we've done a lot of work with USA Boxing on a vaccine campaign to to provide vaccines at. USA boxing events this past year. And it's actually extended into a second grant with judo, curling, karate, and fencing. Um, so, you know, long story short, we've gotten to see the the back office of US sanctioned sports, how they work, 
how they train their athletes, how they care for their athletes. Um, it's been it's been amazing to see that on the back end. It sounds like you live that um, with the with skiing. Um, and I and I think ultimately what we've learned and, and when we were approached, we were like, how do you how are we connecting the pharmacists that work with older adults and boxing? But they made a compelling case that, hey, the people that watch their kids and grandkids box are older adults. Our officials are older adults. People that work for our gyms are older adults. Like, And these are generally individuals in the black population and the Hispanic population that have been underserved. So we think this is an opportunity to, to take the vaccines where they are and, and get them the opportunity to be vaccinated. And it's worked that way. It's been interesting to, and to align health and, you know, world-class level sports makes a lot of sense. These, these athletes are healthy. Mm-hmm. The good, you know, analogy or alignment from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And for the athletes, for the athletes, the, the cost of getting sick is high, mm-hmm. uh, but generally pretty open to, to preventative care in general so that, because they see those direct costs later on much like our older population does and i think that i mean that goes back to i think why we see that separation in the dakotas of super high vaccination rates at our facilities uh paired with pretty low rates in the community is because they're able to kind of segment that risk and see what that risk is well certainly on an event if they you know someone yeah. gets flu or you know break out of flu during an event then the whole event's kind of ruined this is maybe an off the wall question, but do you think there's a in rural environments, do you think there's a feeling that I need to get this vaccine because if I get sick, I'm, you know, in the on the in the countryside and I don't have access necessarily to a quick hospital three minutes away or my physician's office or even a pharmacy I mean, it might be close. But is there that feeling that, hey, I need to do this because you know, I might be somewhere on my ranch or somewhere far away from help. So it may make sense for me to do these preventative things. Is that, do you think that's a, does that move the needle in these areas versus cities? Well, I think there might, there might just be, it might just be easier to reach folks. Yeah. And, you know, leave it, I think there's probably, you're probably leaving less people behind uh, because a single voice in our setting, yeah, can really reach a lot of people. It very well could be, but um, I think that people are. I think people do have access is an issue for sure. And we work Sanford Health is sure. you know we are the rural health organization in the country, so we're always thinking about telehealth access, other ways to make sure people can have access to care. Um, but I, I don't. I, yeah, I wonder if that would be a driver. Maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Patrick, we appreciate you jumping on here. Uh, anything that you'd like to leave us with for what's coming up in, in, in your world or in the vaccine world for 2024? Well, sure. I could I could quickly bounce off what Chad was saying earlier that I think I don't know what I don't know if it has an official name, but I think we've got to get to a place nationally where this idea of any willing provider um, of vaccinations, we, we have to be in a situation where we we can pay and reimburse anyone who's licensed to administer a vaccine to someone. Um, and, and right now, I think one of the reasons we've done well is because 
I sit at a desk and help our locations jump through hoops with, in, in terms of access. And Haley, our infection preventionist, sits at a desk and helps people jump through kind of other hoops when it comes to vaccines. And it really shouldn't have to be that way. We really should be able to just say, have the confidence to know that we can administer and get paid for it. So for example, right now with Part D vaccines, there are most common scenarios the pharmacy provides that Part D vaccine, but we administer. And we administer with no reimbursement right. in that case. And we do it because it's part of what we do. It's not, I'm not going to sit on this podcast and say it's overly burdensome. Our nurses actually like to do that work. It helps them feel close to the patients and doing their doing their job. Um, but it's kind of too bad that you're providing a service that you're just writing off over, you know, and you, you multiply that by hundreds of locations. And that's a significant item, especially for an industry that's struggling to balance a budget. Uh, you know, we're we're struggling to break even. We're a nonprofit chain, and I can tell you, we don't have crazy overhead, and and you know, we're running a pretty lean operation, and and we're struggling to you know to really break even financially. So to get something like that accomplished, uh, if you're if someone's listening to this podcast, what would you hope for them to do, or or say, or, or get a yeah. part of? Yeah. yeah. So if you're a pharmacist who's part of a lobbying or maybe you're a pharmacist with a big company, uh, I think being sure that we're not just advocating for ourselves. So when, I, when I'm when i advocating, I'm advocating for the pharmacies and the pharmacists and for the nursing homes. So it shouldn't, we, we, I think we want to be careful. And I haven't heard this coming from anyone. So it's, but I think we want to make sure we're advocating for this any willing provider yeah. model, yeah. not, not paid hey, the pharmacists need to get paid. Let's make sure we set up a system that works perfectly for the pharmacies because that's going to be great for me in about 50% of my locations. Right. And then I'm I'm going to have a bigger problem in the other 50% right. if it shifts completely in that direction. But if I was out there lobbying saying, hey, let the nursing homes take care of this and direct ship them vaccine, et cetera, it cuts off one of our potentially strongest partners, like I talked about in Sioux Falls, where we had huge rates of success because we had a pharmacy raising their hand saying, we want to do this and we want to own it for you. So I think that I think that's the key, and that's that's where we need to head um, as we move into the future. Yeah, I think the comment at the meeting that we we went to together in November was no closed door. There should not be a closed door. Yeah. Whether you're a staff yeah. member or a resident, at at no point should a clinician say, "I'd like to give you the vaccine. You're willing to get the vaccine, but I can't. You've got you've got to yeah. do this. You've got to either go to this other pharmacy, or we've got to get somebody else to come in here to do it. Like that's what we have to avoid." Because that's the moment of truth for getting people shots. Yeah, I think, and I think if you, it's way outside my my expertise, my realm of expertise. But if you go and listen to any true vaccination expert, the, I think it's number one on all of their lists is that you you have to have a system where you don't turn people away. Right. Uh, you know, at that moment that they're ready to say yes, you need to be ready to vaccinate. The reason I think people can get stressed out about do we get the flu vaccine in October to time it perfectly, or do we do it in August? And nationally, we've said let's set a wide date range and just if they want it, give it, even if it's not maybe the perfect nuanced timing. Right. Um, and so that I think that's key. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being on. Um, appreciate all the work you do. Appreciate your membership at ASCP, and um, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you at a meeting soon. Yeah, sounds good. And, and I, I do listen to the podcast, so it's an honor to be here with you guys. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time on our experience.